Hello there, and welcome to Inside Intercom. I'm Liam Garrity, and it is the final episode of the year. A lot of incredible things happened this year. NASA's Ingenuity helicopter, part of the Mars mission, performed the first powered flight on another planet in history. The 2020 Summer Olympics in Tokyo finally took place. And here at Intercom, 2021 saw us reach many milestones. The biggest? In August, we turned 10. 10 years of making internet business personal. Here on the podcast, we spoke to CEOs, pioneers and leading experts to hear their stories and gain a little wisdom in the process. So today, I thought just before we welcome in the new year and all the big things to come in 2022, we do a wrap-up of all the amazing insights we heard on the podcast this year. Our very first guest of 2021 was Hubert Palin, the founder and CEO of Product Board, a company focused on product management. After hearing Hubert describe Product Board as a system for making better decisions, we asked him what other areas does he apply that systematic thinking? <laughs> he asked my wife how 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 I'm applying systematic <laughs> thinking to everything. Uh, it drives me crazy sometimes. The world is a complex problem, and the way we approach it as humans is that we try to break it down into smaller pieces. Look at the world problems around us. We're just, we've just been through, or we are still through, uh, in, I guess, very tumultuous election season here in the U.S. And uh, uh, but, but if, if you think about politics, it comes down to looking at the country, look at the people, identifying the the criteria or the you know the the topics the, the 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 most important things that people care about and dissecting them and seeing how the country is segmented and then going after each of the segments with the right messaging with the right policy hopefully to satisfy that and it's the same thing in product management it's it's the realization that the markets are not homogeneous that people differ significantly in their needs and it's not just functional needs. It's not just you know what 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 job you're trying to get done uh, uh, in terms of the utility. It is also the the emotional needs, you know, the social needs. Like what is it that that makes us happy as, as people? And you need to understand how the how the how the groups differ. And I mean, look like to, to, to give you an example. I mean, this is inside Intercom podcast, right? So Intercom. Um, there's there's different audiences that you guys satisfy. There's support people, there's marketers, there's product managers, you know, there's salespeople. And so it's very critical to understand how the needs of these target audiences differ and how you're going to then build a product that satisfies, or, or multiple products actually, right, that satisfies the, the, the needs of the customers. And so, you you know, customer feedback, that's, that's the input into it. That's how you get to understand people. And, uh, you know, I mentioned earlier, like CRM, and we don't have a system to understand, uh, to, to centralize uh, the understanding around, around customers. But we have a lot of, uh, of this input in the systems, like in intercom and in support tickets or in the, in, or, or in the uh, conversations, right, in the chat threads. There's so much knowledge there. There is uh, so much knowledge in the sales CRM systems. There's so much knowledge in notes from customer success, quarterly business reviews on conversations. And so we can, we can distill it out of it. We, can, we, we, we just need to get it out. We need to structure it and then turn it into the patterns and into understanding. And again, you know, whether it's product management or whether it's understanding of some other problems out in the world, it's the same problem. 
look, observe, learn, identify patterns, then figure out how you're going to go about approaching the problem, like what's the sequence, and ultimately solve it. In January, we also spoke to Amanda Retoria, CEO for Code for America. They're a non-partisan, non-political 501 organization founded to address the widening gap between the public and private sectors in their effective use of technology and design. Amanda chatted with Intercom Director of Brand Marketing, Sarah Tran, about how governments can leverage technology to build better services and empower its citizens. So I'd love to shift gears a little bit and talk about creating accessibility and creating an accessible government. For us, we think a lot about customer support, customer success, how businesses can better support their customers, and looking at how some tech companies really excel at offering what we call proactive support. So kind of, you know, doing that proactive outreach. A key part of thinking about this is making sure that people do get the information they need at the right time when they need it in the right place and in a a place that they can access that information. So it strikes me that accessibility must be a very important factor when we're talking about offering support to citizens as opposed to customers. How do you think about that accessibility? Is it in, in fact a really important factor? when we're talking about offering that sort of proactive support to citizens, getting them the information that they need at the right time. So you you see this right now in a crisis, how important it is to get information to people in a trusted way and how valuable that is to be able to set a strategy for a country, a state. The issue is, is that government hasn't been very good at that. And, you know, we're learning, I would say, government is learning in real time why you need to have that, why you need to build these systems of accessibility, of communication, of trust. Much of what has been done over the last, I'd say, decade plus is a conversation about actually being afraid of reaching too many people in a program because maybe it'll be fraud or maybe someone will take advantage of it. And we've got to start changing that mentality and, and certainly the pandemic, certainly kids being out of school and working remotely, we're all learning how to do things in a new way. But the idea of government is supposed to reach all people. Does that mean sometimes you're going you're gonna to make a mistake here or there? Yes. But the, the intention is, how do you close gaps? How do you reach as many people as possible? And if that could be the guiding light, as opposed to a fear of failure or fear of fraud, we would have an entirely different way of working together. And I think that's the hope for the future is as we come out of this pandemic, understanding the importance of unity and good communication, um, that's the real hope for government at large is that there's a real emphasis on being able to have that kind of dialogue with people and knowing the importance of it as government evolves over time. In February, we were joined by Intercom CEO Karen Peacock, who shared lessons learned on leadership. So in college, I studied math and computer science and engineering. And at that time, and maybe still now, there was no talk about leadership. Like that was that was not at all on the curriculum. And so I graduated from college with like excellent skills around like math and computer science and engineering and able to solve lots of problems and certainly no kind of formal training on uh, the leadership side. 
I had worked always over the summers. I worked my way through college to help pay for that, but always as an individual contributor. And my first job out of college was with the Boston Consulting Group, BCG, as an individual contributor as well. And I became just an excellent individual contributor. I could do my work very well. And when I first became a manager, I realized very quickly that that was a totally different job and I had no training or preparation for that and I wasn't very good at it because I tried to do exactly the same things. I just tried to help other people like solve their problem very well and I was focused on like right or wrong answers versus like, hey, here's where we're going and I thought it was all about the work. Yes, the work was one piece of it, but it certainly wasn't all about that. I went to the Boston Consulting Group for a few years, and then I went to business school at Stanford for a few years. I learned a lot more about leadership there because that actually was like a part of the, the formal conversation. It was super eye-opening for me, given my background. And then a few years later, joined a startup. I led product management and some marketing, ended up getting promoted to be reporting into the CEO, which completely broadened my perspective about what was important because I was thinking all of a sudden about all different functions and I was on an executive team and, and it was just a very, very different world for me. A few years after doing that, I joined Intuit and that was a, just an amazing place for me from, for many reasons, including from a leadership perspective. And one of the things that we always talked about and invested deeply in was being a leader in developing leaders. I probably know about 20 different people from Intuit who are now CEOs of different companies, Headspace, LegalZoom, a whole bunch of other companies. And at the time, I took what all of my friends told me was a bad move <laughs> and a real step back because I had been like leading product management, reporting into the CEO, and I became a senior product manager with nobody reporting into me. And it was like, whoa, what are you doing? I'm like, no, 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 I believe in this company and the vision and the mission and what we're doing. And it's a company that invests in people. And so I took that leap and over the years ended up taking on more and more responsibility there and just learned most of what I've learned about leadership there. Learned that it is about the people and vision and purpose and work in that order, not work, <laughs> work, work. <laughs> and that it's, much more fun and rewarding for me rather than just doing the work to actually lead people and lead teams. And one of the things that I get most excited and inspired by is when folks on my team do amazing things. Things are so much better than what I had thought of or imagined. And so over the years, I, I spent more and more time on things like vision and purpose and strategy and you know getting all arrows pointed in the same direction and really just ended up realizing that life was about so much more than just getting the answer right. And it really is about where are you going? Why does that matter? Why is that exciting? Where does everybody else want to go? How can you best inspire and empower the, the people around you? And on that note of empowering the people around you, in March, Zaneda Mann, founder of Black Women's Business Collective, joined us to share some great advice on advocating for your peers and how you can be an ally. I know what it feels like to want to do something for your business or a business idea that you have and not have the capital. So capital is important and there are many ways. I know people often say, oh, try to get, you know, VC funding or angel investment funding. That is not an option for many of us until that atmosphere opens up for us. And that leads me to A, which is the allyship, right? We need, we need your buy-in. We need people who have access 
you know, allyship, uh, you know, access. We need that. We can't create that our, ourselves. We don't have the access. You may have the opportunity to that to be around the access, but we don't have the access, which would be the systemic barriers that you mentioned earlier. Like because it's systemic, that already 100% excludes us. So we need someone to be, you know, and there's a little controversy behind that, but we need, we do need those champions in certain spaces. Like we can say, oh, you know what, let's pull our own money. We could do it ourselves. And I get it. Yes. And and I've seen it done in in certain communities, but for the most of us who want to scale, we need capital investment. We need someone to make warm introductions for us because that's just the, that's just the world we live in right now. Unfortunately, with the amount of uh, racism and and other systemic challenges that are out there, we need someone to open that door uh, for us or or even give us information, right? Uh, You know, there's a lot of times that we are bootstrapping and what I'll say is unnecessarily, right? Because we don't know. You only know what you know. So if you don't know it, you're liable to make a mistake or, uh, you know, put yourself in a situation where you don't actually have to do that. You can outsource. I remember the first time someone said to me maybe about 10 years ago and they were just like, why are you doing that yourself? Why don't you, you know, outsource? And they they told me about this website, go get some people who can create that graphic for you. Cause I was like learning as had to be longer than 10 years ago, but CS4, that's how old I am. We're talking about, (laughs) talking about creative suite four from Adobe. And I was over here learning illustrator because I, I said, I need some really cool graphics so people can, you know, like my business, this was my mindset. And then someone said, no, you can just pay somebody, you know, if you have it, like pay $50 and get them to make the logo for you. So you don't have to put all your brain power into that. You can actually work on the business and not in the business. And I'm just like, oh, okay. But a lot of us in this moment, they don't know that, right? They're just, they want to make some sales. They're making some shea butter. They're making soap. They're making candles. And they, you know, they're not thinking about the, these processes that, um, will help you scale your business so you don't have to work in it, you're working on it. So that's where, you know, that comes from with access, right? Give me access to information. You don't have to give me access to your whole network. I mean, that would be nice too, right? But you can give me access to information, share what you know. An important tool for sharing knowledge is, of course, Wikipedia. In March, we were joined by then-COO for Wikimedia Foundation, Janine Uzel. The information on Wikipedia is only as strong as the citations that support it. And that's why you'll often hear Wikipedians say, they'll make a statement and then they'll say, citation needed. So this is truth, but where's the citation to back it up? It's also what lends so much validation to the stories and the content on Wikipedia because the likelihood of the the truth being told is backed up by the citations and the newsworthiness. So we like to say, if it happens in the world, it happens on Wikipedia. Now, the challenge of that is people will say, well, this is critically important. Why is there no Wikipedia page on it? This person is encyclopedic. They've done, you know, they're Nobel Prize winners or otherwise. Why are there no Wikipedia pages on them? One, because there is a bias and that we have to do to close the gap, particularly as it relates to women and the content of women on Wikipedia. There's no one size fits all method to improve the diversity. And that presents a serious challenge. So currently right now, 
only about 18% of the biographies on English Wikipedia are about women. And we know that that is not reflective of the percentage of women in the world, correct? And so we've seen gender disparity. There would be more stories about women if more women felt like they could be a part of the community, right? This goes back to what I talked about earlier about our universal code of conduct and creating a place that is safe and thriving and acceptable. So for the past several years, you know, only about 10 or 11% of our contributors across all of the projects identify as women. Last year in 2020, we did see this number jump to about 15%. And this is, this is exciting and it's wonderful because we are, we're trending in the right direction. And, and based on our research, the reason we're seeing this increase, we're seeing this increase in gender, mostly among contributors that live in Africa, the Americas, both Latin America and Northern America, and Oceania. So it's this is exciting and this is important because editing Wikipedia is an activity that's been dominated by men. And so we need more community organizers to be women. We need leaders within our movement to be more diverse so that we can create a space that shifts the structures of our power, even in our movement, so that they're more representative of the world. Another thing that I want to say is that it's back to Wikipedia being a tertiary source. And that is that as much as we also must do our part on Wikipedia to ensure that we have a more diverse community of people, it's very important that other media sources in the world tell the stories that support what goes on Wikipedia as well. And so when we write a story about someone, we need the news to back up the validation of that story. And so if there were more stories in the news about women, women in technology, women in STEM, women in medicine, women in sports, if the news wrote more of those stories, if if our media sources spent more time elevating the stories of women, then that would help drive content to Wikipedia as well. And so it's it's a community effort, both on Wikipedia and in, in the world as well. Customers who trust their brands will spend more money, even if it's more expensive than competitors. Farhan Verji, Vice President of Customer Happiness at Later, provided us with this nugget in March about how great support is key for retention. Trust is, is not something you get easily anymore with the level of competition out there, especially when it comes to service, right? The service you get from the brands you interact with is more highly correlated to what your impression of that brand is over and above what the marketing and what the product actually is. People associate the service they get with their impression of that brand. And then they talk about it, right? So I think that's where B2C has a higher, a much higher level of impact than B2B. Will Larson is the CTO of Calm, the mindfulness app. Will had some great insights into how to build a technical leadership career. Here, we asked Will to tell us a little about the four archetypes of staff roles namely architect, tech lead, solver, and right hand. One of the core problems with staff engineers is like, what is a staff engineer? And if you talk to people at like seven different companies, you'll see some overlap, but also a lot of things that don't overlap at all. And I was trying to figure out how do we describe them in a way that 
acknowledges the fact that different companies have just like different kind of needs. And so you have different staff engineers. And Facebook actually has this idea of kind of, I think, L5 archetypes, which is kind of their, their, their level. And so they've developed this into their own set of kind of representations for what makes sense for them. Um, but as they talk to more different companies, I, I kind of settled on these four in terms of like different ways different companies have needs that represent the, the role of the staff engineer. And I do think if you look at our industry, there some of these ideas are, are really well understood, but have fallen out of favor. So architects, like when I first started, my first job in the tech industry was at Yahoo. And over like a certain level, I think it was like the, the fourth level, everyone became an architect. And then they were like a senior architect, like a principal architect, then like a senior principal. And like distinguished, there were like, I think like 14 levels and only the first three were engineers and there were like 11 levels of architects or something. But the idea of architecture has not remained popular because many of the people fulfilling these architect roles like did it in a way that was very top down, doesn't represent the, what we've learned about leadership since uh, the industry has kept growing. But the work is still there and still needs to happen. And so I wanted to think about how do we talk about what these people are doing, but in a way that's like a little bit more about decoupling role from, from level. And that's how I ended up with these four. And, and just real quickly, architect, someone who's usually responsible for a given area. Um, so often going to be a, a peer to like a director or a senior manager, and is trying to figure out how do we make all the decisions we make on a given area, say databases or, you know, networking, or it could be front end in terms of the UI, UX, or it could be like iOS engineering, it could be like any of these different areas, but a certain area, and it's really thinking about the quality of the code in that area. Tech lead is typically like someone who's like tagged to a specific team and is partnering with them on like whatever they're trying to do. Solvers tend to be reactive to what leadership is really worried about. So for example, hey, there's a GDPR deadline and we haven't done any GDPR work and we're about to be screwed in two months. How do we fix it? And so I think though most companies at a certain size like have teams or collection of individuals who are just like able to pivot to like whatever leadership is really concerned about. It might be reliability, it might be a compliance issue, it might be um, a competitive threat, like whatever. And these folks are real and important, but often like kind of ignored because they don't fit into this like team structure that we typically use to think about larger organizations. And the final one is this like right hand. And I think this is important construct because a lot of companies have folks who are have some random title, like often um, like a staff engineer, but are almost not doing what we'd consider to be like technical work in some ways. Like they're, they're almost doing like the same work that the manager is doing. They have no direct reports. And finding a way to kind of acknowledge that we like see these folks. And so I talked to like Rick Boone at Uber, who is a great example. I talked to Michelle Boo at, at Stripe and who are partnered directly with some senior leader and are taking a lot of their leadership tasks. And this is where I think this idea of like management versus leadership gets um, really interesting, where staff engineers are leaders at the companies, whether they're doing any of these different archetypes, but they're not managerial leaders. They're their own different type of like technical leadership. In September, Webflow's Maggie Hosh spoke to us about building a scalable sales team from the ground up. That process involves a lot of interviewing. So Maggie shared some questions to ask to understand if the person interviewing is the right one for the job. 
I actually now these days I'm in five to six interviews a day. So, wow. so we, <laughs> I, I ask a lot of interview questions, but I'll touch on some of the core themes that I like to focus on. So first off, I really like to understand what are their most proud wins? What are their toughest losses? I like to understand, especially for these early days, what is it that these account executives have done that's above and beyond their current role of just selling? I like to ask about their biggest mistakes they've made. I like to ask about their proudest moments. Something that is really, really important to me too is I like to look at their career trajectories. I've actually found the most impressive candidates are the ones that are promoted from within an organization and continue to grow from within versus the ones that are leaving and hopping every year or so in order to get a higher title or pay elsewhere. I also spend a lot of time digging into why people make the moves they did because I actually think it really takes a full year to get good at selling a product and building a pipeline. And it's a bit of a red flag if someone's hopping after a year because it means their pipeline probably wasn't where it needed to be. Finally, during my interview process, I would say one of the biggest telling signs for when I pass on a candidate is I like to probe into why a deal was lost. And actually what I'm looking for here is, is not if they you know can win or lose deals. I'm actually looking to see, do they take ownership of losing the deal or are they blaming others? What did they learn from this lost deal? How are they using this to improve? And I think above all else, the number one thing that I'm looking for here is a growth mindset. Speaking of a growth mindset, our very own Des Trainer, co-founder of Intercom, and Paul Adams, SVP of Product, had an enlightening conversation on our podcast, Intercom on Product. It was all about keeping momentum going. They had this chat just as we turned 10 years old earlier this year. Here's Paul. Momentum is velocity times mass. Velocity okay. is like how fast you're moving. So, you know, for us in building software, how fast are we executing? That's maybe product changes made. And then in a specific direction, right? So it's like not just how, not just speed, but it's in a specific direction, which is strategy. Mm-hmm. And so you're looking at like how fast are we executing, yeah. and is it is everyone moving in the same direction? Are we just executing yeah. it like blindly all over the place? So that's one thing. What's the kind of velocity of the company? And then the second thing is mass, which is like how many people do we have? How many teams do yeah. we have? And you can kind of dig into both of those areas and say, you know, on the mass side, like how big are the teams? Are they efficient? What are people doing? How are they making decisions? And then on the execution side, like, you know, what's people's expectations of what good looks like and shipping product changes and not shipping product changes? Mm-hmm. Do they all ladder up to a strategy? Is it really easy for people to explain? So there, there are like specific things we can drill into. The other thing, though, is there's a, like, I often say to people, like, momentum is infectious. And when a company yeah. is a high momentum company, you know, you just know, you walk in yeah. the door and you can feel it. Like, you know, I've often told you the story, Des, when we talked about kind of office environments and what makes a great office environment and so on. The first time I ever walked into the Facebook office, the HQ in Palo Alto at the time, was like circa 2010. And I was walking, literally walking from, or driving in this case, from the Google offices into the Facebook offices. And holy shit, the difference, you know, and obviously it's like a part of Google and so on. But the Facebook office was just, the momentum was infectious. Like it was in the air. You know, you could just, just buzzing, feel it. like just the noise, the, like the yeah. pace, people storming from desk to desk, just getting stuff done. Yeah. People are just like, we are on it. We're on a mission here, yeah. you know, and it was just amazing and brilliant to be a part of. And so it's really infectious. And, you know, I, I do think a lot of the things that, that create that atmosphere are things that are happening in 
the discussions people are having and, and how fast they're making decisions. And it might really just boil down to that simple thing of like how fast we make decisions. But, you know, if you're walking into a room and it's like, here's what we're going to do. You know, we've got to do this, we've got to do that. What do we know? What do we not know? And who's deciding? Are we deciding now? Are we deciding today, tomorrow? That's just a different experience to, and then, you know, and then we're shipping and we're getting customer feedback and it's a whole beautiful virtuous loop. That's just a very different feeling to like a company where you walk in and it's like, there's a lot more procrastination. You know, mm, interesting. Yeah, yeah. Let's think about that. Or there's a meeting on Thursday that we're going to go to where we're going to learn what we're doing, you know? Yeah. And like, the, and, and even, you know, some versions of this, like have some validity, of course, like, hey, we need more data. We're not sure. How sure yeah. are we? We're like 60% sure. We want to get to 80% yeah. sure. And you're like, well, maybe 60% is good enough. But then the worst versions of this are things like you walk in and people are like, we can't decide today. You know, like if I was, again, like evaluating whatever the corp was, you said there, people yeah, would say things corp, like yeah. yeah, in the worst examples, they'd be like, oh, we're going to decide that next week. I'm like, why are you deciding next week? It's like, ah, oh, Des is on holidays. All right, yeah. who's Des? Oh, he's our designer. All right. And it's a kind of a design decision. Uh, you know, like it's not really a design decision. It's a PM decision, but like design's impact. I don't really want to upset mm-hmm. Des. He's on his holidays, you know. So when he comes back, we'll have a chat, have a meeting. Actually, our team meeting scheduled for a week after when he comes back. We'll probably talk about it then. Yeah. And I'm like, uh-oh, uh-oh, you know. But this happens. Like, you know, th- these are normal human things to do, like wait for Des to come back and chat to Des yeah. and get back. And people don't realize like that the reason things end up quarters late is because like, you know you lose a quarter in like days and half days. You don't actually lose it in like one quarter decisions. No one's like, let's push this whole thing out a quarter. It's just a, the, a consistent aggregation of those. Uh, we'll, we'll chat about that on Tuesday, you know? Yeah. It, it strikes me some amount of this has got to do with like the companies who insist on the synchronous culture, like as in everything has to happen in meetings and therefore everyone needs to be around at the same time and therefore it needs to get scheduled and therefore it needs to get pushed out a week or whatever. Versus like whatever, like Slack, Threads, Basecamp, Gmail, you know, whatever the tool is, like there are, are like many decisions that can be made a, a, async. And I think, is it fair to say an async culture can be a lot faster because it, because you just don't have this calendar collision problem? Uh, it's a good question. I don't know. Uh, you know, we were, we were a very synchronous face-to-face company and culture yeah. for all of our early years, mm-hmm. uh, up until the pandemic uh, probably forces not to be in a way. Yeah. Um, so I think you can have an insanely fast culture, yeah. a high momentum culture. Facebook was like that too back in those days. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it was all face-to-face. Not, nothing was even written down. You yeah. know? And so I think you can have it in a, in a synchronous live culture if, yeah. if, if that's how people operate and behave. And as I said, I think you're correct. And, and it's also fair to say that just simply being async doesn't mean you're moving fast either. Maybe the actual difference is like, and you used the phrase work, work earlier. And like, when I hear work, work, what I usually want my mind jumps to is like the worst form of yak shaving, something that's indirectly potentially associated with something that might help something that might help something that might help us ship software, you know, that type of stuff. And I think we have been pretty good at fighting against anything, like whether it's like process steps or like reports or whatever, that where people can like lose hours or potentially weeks or let their calendar get filled up on like these kind of empty carbohydrates that ultimately don't really matter. And like, when you have a free calendar like that, then what happens is in a synchronous culture, you just walk down the hall and ask Des, hey, make a design decision on this or that or whatever. And that's an actual easy thing to do. Whereas when everyone is busy, like, you know, dotting I's and crossing T's on a dozen different sort of outcome reports or whatever, then you can, you can like genuinely feel a delay of we're a synchronous culture, but the person I need to talk to is like fully booked. Yeah. 
there's obviously, you know, in all of the things we're talking about today, there's obviously a sweet spot. For example, like in a fully live synchronous culture, maybe f- people feel like everyone needs to be part of the decision. But in mm-hmm. fact, that's not necessarily the case. And that's only a problem if the expectation is, is set within the culture that everyone should be part of the decision, right? Yeah. And then you get, you know, the worst versions of this, which is, you know, some kind of democracy or something. But yeah, um, yeah. And I, don't, I don't think that, that's not the sweet spot, clearly. And of course, then yeah. there's other extremes where like, people are just left out of the loop. You know, you kind of have an alpha culture where people are just deciding, you know, yeah. irrespective of other people's opinions. And But there is, there is certainly a sweet spot. And I think oftentimes, again, it's just the kind of boiling the frog thing. Little bit by little bit, the culture starts to naturally gravitate towards trying to include everyone or, you know, get more data or just it comes, becomes a little bit more conservative as you grow and it's something you have to actively fight and actively think about and push and change and evolve and adapt there we have it a year across all three of our podcasts scale by intercom intercom on product and of course inside intercom And that was just a small sample of the amazing speakers who joined us this year. So do browse the back catalogue for more fantastic conversations. We have amazing guests lined up for 2022. But for now, we want to thank all of the brilliant people who shared their knowledge with us this year. And thank you for listening. Thank you so much for having me. I just appreciate you allowing me to be so expressive and, and to share some of my passions. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure, and I'm really grateful that you want to help spread the word. Thank you so much for having me. It is my pleasure, and you know what? I hope that I get to come back again, so I'll just put it out there. I'll be back. Thank you so much for having me. It's been, been fantastic, and I hope to be back with another book in like three three to five years. Thank you so much for having me, and I hope you have a wonderful day. Absolutely been my pleasure. Thank you for interviewing me like a friend. Thank you.